The hardest thing in a startup is connecting the dots between a product and a business. There are a tremendous number of products out there. A product just solves a problem and everyone has problems, but just solving a problem doesn't necessarily mean building a business and connecting the dots between these two are, is the most difficult thing. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. Rick Song, co-founder and CEO at Persona, joins us to discuss what it's like founding a business in a highly competitive, ultra-regulated environment. And in this conversation, we cover some of the early stage challenges behind building identity-based products that deal with highly sensitive information. We talk about moats and navigating the valley of death in a highly regulated industry, what it actually means to be execution-driven as a company, and some other great lessons and insights behind Rick's journey. Let me introduce you to Rick. Rick Song is the CEO and co-founder of Persona, the identity infrastructure company offering businesses the building blocks to create a personalized identity verification experience for any use case. Earlier in his career, Rick noticed a fundamental problem with identity verification. Providers were taking a one-size-fits-all approach that did not meet business needs and consumer expectations. Persona's mission is to be the identity layer of the internet, and Rick and his team are working toward making the internet a safer place by providing a customized solution that takes into account user base, regulatory requirements, appetite for risk, and unique verification requirements. Enjoy our conversation with Rick Song. So first off, just wanted to say welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing? How are things? I'm all right. It's uh, Thank you so much for having me. How are things right now? It's hectic. I'm grateful that we're in the position we're in right now. But it definitely is hectic these days. Absolutely. And some of the headlines for the topics you and I are going to talk about, we're going to be diving into some of those early challenges that you faced in a company dealing primarily with sensitive information or maybe in an industry where there's a, a larger barrier to entry. We'll also talk about kind of like founding and operating in a more competitive space and what that's like. But before we jump into you know, that world, let's set some context. Can you tell us about the origin story of Persona? Bring us into your world. So... Prior to all of this, I was an engineer over at Square. My co-founder, engineer at Dropbox, and two of us were roommates put together for, you know, a fair bit of time. Honestly, through the majority, actually, of the founding of this company as well. I oftentimes say that Persona was the conflation of actually two kind of things. One of which is uh, the idea of actually doing a startup was actually entirely my co-founders. In a lot of ways, he's the one who I always joke is the much more entrepreneurial of the two of us. I was over at Square, and a lot of my time there was spent working on identity, a fair bit of time there. And identity from many different contexts, whether that be from a fraud and risk perspective, from a compliance perspective, from a trust and safety perspective, especially because Square at that time was branching off from becoming originally, it was just that white card reader that, you know, you've probably seen at a food truck into an entire ecosystem of merchant services. And then later on, of course, consumer applications as well being cash app. But at that time, a lot of our work was on capital, which is our lending product, payroll, caviar, which actually was food delivery, which later on got acquired by a DoorDash. But all of these had kind of identity in a unique perspective and a unique kind of challenges facing it. And given that the time I was at Square when all of these products were rather nascent, we were discovering kind of the myriad of ways that identity will come into play. Charles having kind of the entrepreneurial idea. And then uh, for myself, my push was towards how about this? This is a big problem that we're seeing at Square. This idea that every single vendor out there is kind of saying like, here's the silver bullet to solve identity. Like this is the one last thing you need to know who everyone is. Promise some statistics that I would say uh, numbers are far more complex than I think sometimes how the marketing materials may portray it. And then, you know, for companies, what we are facing is that the reality is that identity is far more nuanced, that every use case requires something very uniquely tailored for it. Even the demographics you serve require something unique. So if you are a neobank that serves the re you know, recent image versus like those with thin credit profiles. Maybe I recently saw a neobank where, you know, they really target 
founders. Every one of these kind of demographics have different profiles and different identity challenges as a result. But even beyond that, also the use case itself, if you're doing alcohol delivery versus giving someone a million dollar loan, identity manifests in different ways. So that kind of complexity is what we were seeing. And the idea for Persona was, what if we build a platform that really kind of embraces the flexibility that's inherent in identity, that there just isn't this one size fits all, but instead, it truly is kind of needs to be tailored for every single individual personalized based off your individual background, the needs that you have, and for the business kind of having that. So that was a lovely idea behind Persona. And then Charles being the one who was like, hey, I'm down to do this. I think this would be a great idea. It was kind of the initial founding story. And then uh, as with all kind of startups, it started off in our apartment. The first person who joined us was actually a high school friend of mine. The next two, one person who actually started Square about the same time as myself. So uh, Bill, Valeria, like him and I have worked now together for, geez, I think we're just over 10 years. So it's a, it's a journey for the two of us. And then Chrissy Kim, who uh, actually was the sister of the person who actually gifted me uh, that Texas kind of art. So Charles was, it sounds like Charles was the instigator. What was the moment like where you two were coming together and you made the decision like, we're going to do this, we're going to embrace like the flexibility inherent with the identity, we're going to build a platform around this. Like what was that specific moment like for you? I think back in the day, we used to try to like, you know, play up the, or maybe decorate it a little bit more in terms of what had happened. But these days, I'll give, I'm, I like to be a little more blunt because I, I think these days so many startups try to, you know, mythologize what had happened <laughs> at these times. The truth of it actually was, uh, for myself, I'd been at Square for about five years. Charles had been at Dropbox for about a similar time, almost as well, right? And uh, actually, in the early days, a lot of my thought was, this would be a nice sabbatical. I'm curious to know how this would be. Charles and I had always talked about like working on something together. Honestly, maybe working at the same company together, something to that effect. And that was kind of honestly the early thing. It was like, well, I'm approaching five years. And he was like, we can go off and do this. And I'd be like, yeah, all right, I'll try this out for a bit, right? You know, if in six months, this doesn't go anywhere. Let's just go work somewhere together, right? And that was honestly the early, early take of it. There wasn't something much deeper at that time in terms of what we were thinking about. Uh, there wasn't like some like lightning in a bottle moment in which we saw something. Actually, a lot more of it was Charles saying like, let's do it. And then I was just saying like, here's the problem that at least I know best. And I think that at the very least, I think is a pretty key thing because a lot of times for founders, what we're told is like, do what you know. And I really strongly believe in that. So often we're looking for ideas of like, here's a problem. But in truth, I think there's always problems that if, you know, if you've been working at any place for a decently long period of time that you face constantly. And I think those are oftentimes the best challenges for us to tackle. I think one of the types of, of input folks share with aspiring founders is like, you know, pick an idea that you want to stick with for five to 10 years. To me, in hearing some of that advice, like, oh my gosh, like I have to commit to something for that long. Uh, and so for you, it kind of sounds like it was the opposite. It was like, let's start off. It's, well, it's, a, it's, it's an idea. It's like, we'll start off. This will be a fun thing to do for a sabbatical. It's a problem area I know well. But now, like, you know, fast forward, Persona's had some, some really interesting growth and success. Was it as simple as like, this is a fun thing to do as a sabbatical, and then you got excited about it and continued to be like, want to invest deeper? Or was like that advice about pick something you want to stick with for five, 10 years, like the kind of relevant advice there? What, what was your experience with that dilemma? So I will say this, like, if you are going to found a company on anything, you do have to, like, inherent in that idea is that you have to be open to sticking with it for a very, very long time. So I worked on identity for a fair bit of time, like almost shortly after I joined Square. And it wasn't like when I joined Square, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the most interesting problem in the world. In all actuality, I wasn't like, if you're a fresh out of college new grad, your first idea generally is towards something on the consumer side and seeing something a little bit more resonant there. Definitely not something that's very like infrastructural that powers other teams, right? That wasn't like the thing that got me incredibly excited. I always joke with people that uh, 
Back in the day, I think the engineering leverage wasn't nearly the same as it is today. Effectively, what happened was that some engineering manager was like, hey, Rick, work on this. And me being a new grad wanting to keep my job was like, sure, right? Like, you know, you're the boss. I'll do anything. <laughs> I, I want a job, you know? And then uh, with that, I kind of stuck with it. I mean, I worked on around like that general topic service area for over four years there. Found a lot of like interest in it. I like to just go deep on something and I'm not the choosiest in terms of what to go deep on. So there wasn't that so much of it. And honestly, when Charles and I had first found it, a lot more of it was the idea of like, I definitely would want to work with him for five, 10 years. I don't really care what idea we work on together, but I'd like to work on him with it for a very, very long time. And that's been the key of it. And honestly, for most of the founding team, for us, I mean, everyone's still here, which is, uh, I think, always been the key thing that brings folks at Persona together. Most people who join us, their same inclination, their idea isn't that identity is the coolest thing out there. These days, I do think like people are realizing how important it is for so many interactions. But, you know, five years ago, that was not the case. These days, I think people think that more and more. I like the idea of, of framing it of like, is this somebody that I'd want to work with, like whatever the problem is for three to five years and like collaborate with together and, and do something really exciting. I wanted to ask you about some of the the early days experiences because the dynamics of the space that you're in are so interesting when it comes to like business building. You're in the identity space. Inherent in that is you're dealing with private sensitive information uh, that's high stakes for people, requires a lot of trust. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about like, you know, some of the dynamics or the challenges of building, you know, an identity based business. Like what were some of the things that are, are hard to do in the beginning when starting it up? So there was a, there was a quite an existential moment for us, like just a couple months after, because uh, <laughs> we used to joke that like, in retrospect, it was very obvious this would be a problem. By that time, you know, given like, we were just thinking like, oh, let's just go and try this out and see what happens. Uh, we hadn't thought too deeply about this, which is in 2018, this is the era of like, just countless data breaches, your Equifaxes, you know, like your target, every single company and some like, and honestly, enterprises were having major, major personal information data breaches. Simultaneously, there was a huge wave of regulatory changes. GDPR, for example, Example, right? But like CCPA, like every, a bunch of other countries at the time were like essentially working on privacy regulations. The impact on us at that time was pretty much uh, no company that is like of decent size would want a startup, much less, you know, a very early stage startup deal with personal information. So I think three, four months in, we had this existential crisis, which was like, we can work with very small startups, but what if that's it? <laughs> and like, and do we have to just hope one of them takes off? And, you know, there's obviously fantastic companies who have been founded with that, but it definitely was a riskier kind of like strategy because it meant a lot of times you wouldn't have as much control over your destiny. You have to hope that, you know, the folks that you're working with are good. Not to mention for us, the space was hyper competitive. I mean, we weren't the only startup, but there are also a ton of like incumbents too. So for us, like to navigate through that, the big thing that we decided to start really pushing on was we have to be less ambitious if we're going to go up market on what kind of use cases we want to tackle. Everyone wants the onboarding use case. Everybody wants the high volume, high kind of like uh, transactions, you know, like the high criticality use cases. Some degree of self-awareness and humility <laughs> made us quickly recognize that that's not going to happen. Instead, we'd have to prove ourselves. And it'd probably be working with companies on incredibly low value use cases that are high risk challenging and like really long sales cycle just to prove that we're kind of a good company and like you you can trust us and after that hope that they'll like kind of scale up with us and like see that the value of what we're building and use it in other places as well so that became actually a really key part of our strategy about four or five months in the whole dogma for us was lowest risk for the business kind of highest pain point use cases for the business to like try to target those as our initial kind of entry point in and that became a lot of the strategy for how do we like just scale ourselves up to build more reputable brands Target harder problems. And I think one of the biggest benefits of doing that was it forced our platform 
to be really generalizable because these pain points, like the high pain point use cases are usually the ones with the highest complexity, the ones that like businesses are like, oh gosh, like I really don't want to like create something here. They require a lot of flexibility, a ton of manual operations, trying to create a streamlined way to deal with that actually became a huge superpower for us because in reality, most of the time for onboarding flows, the world started trending in that direction as well, which is more complexity, more personalization, more customization. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, like, was this like identifying an area that like nobody was serving, like within the specific identity space, like nobody was serving these particular use cases. So you went in and created in this area. And then from there, it was like, once you had the proof and like the trust, you were able to expand the different services that you were providing. I think that's a far cleaner way to kind of uh, state it. But yeah, that's actually spot on. But I will advise folks on this one, because I think it is a it's a risky one. For us, it truly was a leap of faith. And at that time, we weren't sure if we'd ever be able to expand. That low value part's really risky because it doesn't necessarily translate into, well, they like you for this. Are they actually going to use you for something else? And that was just a leap of faith that we took. If you can avoid it, I would generally recommend to founders. Like that's not generally the best place to tackle. It's an interesting deconstruction of what happened and then like almost like offering advice in a different direction of like an anti-pattern. Avoid that if if possible. Um, So I, I think that's interesting. So the leap of faith, what gave you confidence to go with that strategy like knowing it was a leap of faith. There's two parts to it. And I always joke that, you know, like there is a a rationalized part and then like honestly the more true emotional aspect for it. So the rationalized version of it was that uh, the other thing we're seeing a lot in the industry at this time was that people oftentimes like verticalize their solutions. They would target one very specific use case and say like, that's what I'm going to service that. And then over time, I kind of branch out and go wide. And every single identity player generally looked at this. It would be like, oh, I focus on credit underwriting, or I focus on KYC, AML, or I focus strictly on age verification. They try to like own that overall vertical. And then over time, try to like add more knobs and dials to say, I can also do other things. But what ends up happening is really they specialize in that one vertical very rarely can they end up servicing others because like the core architecture that they create is too stratified, too too calcified to actually go off and like change and like be dynamic enough to serve something else. And the internal expertise of the team wouldn't be able to tackle those as well. So for us, one idea of like tackling these really like high pain point use cases was it forces us to deal with the most complex ones. And by doing so, that creates a very generalizable base that allows us to go and say like, well, we can in long-term service any use case and build hopefully what we wanted to build was like this universal identity platform, identity platform that can service any use case and escape the kind of this gravity of every existing vendor being only good for one specific sector of the world, right? Like a fintech identity player or a marketplace identity player. Our goal was to really build something that would go horizontal. If we're going to try to build a truly successful startup on this end, we should go ambitious and see, can we actually hit this idea of universality? That universality thing was a big defense for us. The emotional reason at that time, honestly, was uh, Charles and I oftentimes joke that, uh, look, this art might go nowhere, but I, I at least want one customer. And then that became, this art might go nowhere, but I at least want like one logo that people recognize. <laughs> and then, you know, like, it was really like just dumb, like micro goals that we had. It was like, oh, one day I'd like to be paid more than $1,000 this month, right? Like, or, and then at one, at one point I was like, it'd be cool minus that revenue one day can just pay ourselves, right? It's not a good business, but it'd be nice if that hits minimum wage one day. And we just had all these like very dumb, small goals. And one of those was like, look, if we're going to die anyway, let's hit as many of these goals as we can. (laughs) In my mind, that's oftentimes the real reason why we try to like just go for like these high pain point use cases. Because, you know, for us, success was honestly, we just didn't expect success. So we're like, at every given point, let's just see if we can get this next micro goal that we had. And one of those goals was it'd be nice one day to have like a recognizable logo. That'd be cool. You know, like at the very least, I can write home about it. Would you recommend the micro goal strategy 
Because I think it's really easy like to fall prey to the mindset of like, you know, we're trying to start the next trillion dollar business or whatever. But it almost sounds like small sets of experimentation that then have led up to like the larger success of the company so far. Honest answer is I don't know, right? Because like, uh, look, we have the Elon Musks out there or, you know, these uh, many founders who like immediately from day one are like, I am going to change the world. And like, hey, I, I, I gotta say, there's a lot of Teslas on the road these days. So <laughs> it seems, yeah. yeah, that could be effective. But I will say from a Sandy perspective, it was nice because it kept us grounded. And like at every given point, it had like, you know, we never, we just never had this like strong like idea that, oh, this will become big. But at every point, it always kept us like chasing towards something. And even today, honestly, it still kind of is like that, which is every single year, there's like just a set of like small goals. There's a joke that we have of like this bingo card, which is like for all of us at the company, if all of our former employers kind of use us, that'd be really cool. Like it's just like one of these days that we kind of hit that, which is like we were able to like somehow get as a customer almost one of our all of our former employers. And that feels like some connection to all everywhere we work. So things like that. I feel just create something in which there's something like whimsical about it that makes the goal more meaningful because of course you can always say like oh I want to hit like this valuation or this revenue or like IPO one day but the whimsicality of it sometimes reminds us you know it's uh, I always joke it's just a job and it's just a business it's just a business (laughs) let's let's not like over romanticize everything that we're doing here what I what I appreciate about that, whether intentional or not, was like the whimsicality creates emotion. And I think emotion creates energy around trying to achieve something. And I think the other is like the specificity, or even just like the simplicity makes it more attainable, which then creates momentum. So both like emotion and momentum, I think lead to continued growth or success moving forward. Because like, as soon as you start to get to that feeling of like, we're accomplishing these goals, then it becomes easier to continue to set different ones and, and to continue to like ride that momentum. So I think it's really cool. You mentioned universality was a big defense. I wanted to talk about moats and navigating the valley of death kind of within the context of the industry personas in. What was that experience like? Talk to us about like the dynamics of moats and crossing the valley of death. One of the bigger challenges I think within this space as a whole is, okay, so the general kind of advice that you get for a startup is focus on a niche. Like I, I would say like, you know, this is like a really core like YC advice. And I, in all respects, like I think it's worked tremendously well for the past 10 years. So classic examples of this would be like Twitch, focus on gaming and then one day continue to expand. But like find that niche and then like see what happens, right? Airbnb is like, hey, let's start targeting, you know, like uh, having people kind of like uh, rent out their homes then over time, like it'll become larger and larger. And the two observations I have here is generally actually for the companies who have succeeded by focusing on one niche, they usually continue to specialize that niche forever. It turns out that for Twitch, far more people want to watch uh, people play video games than we expected. For Airbnb, it just turns out that people want to rent each other's homes. I always joke that I have bad proc sense because if you had told me that 20 years ago, I'd be like, that's <laughs> insanity. <laughs> you just want to like sleep on my couch? I mean, I'll rent you but uh, as a $70 billion business. Like, you got to think about that, right? But I think that's the core thing, which is it turns out that when you focus on the niche, you have to bet on that like general demographic like growing. And there's a certain like loss of control because now you're left to like the market. And for identity, the challenge that we faced in particular was that we're not entering into, you know, like whereas Twitch and Airbnb and others are entering into markets that might not have existed before uh, or defining new markets. For us, like we're innovating on a market that has already existed. One, you know, that there are already a lot of competitors, alternative solutions. Uh, I oftentimes like to make the comparison that Persona, in a lot of ways, is much more similar to businesses like Zoom or Snowflake, in which neither of them are like creating something completely new. There's new technology for sure, but like the use case itself is still the same. And once you're entering into a competitive market like that, I think one of the most important things is to understand the existing dynamics. And earlier I mentioned that one of the existing dynamics that we saw in the identity space was 
this idea of like almost vertical concentration. And everyone were effectively saying that we're going to vertically concentrate and then go horizontal, which again, matches the advice that you generally receive of like fitting a niche. But with that vertical concentration, what ended up happening was that every single company within the identity space, very few of them were ever able to really grow large enough because over time, what happens, they specialize more and more, the niche becomes smaller to a certain degree because of all the competition, and then they can never generalize outward and it became very difficult. So our idea was, well, we've seen everyone else take this idea of like, let's go vertical and like really focus on that first, like single kind of use case, single product. And we're like, well, it didn't seem to work for anyone else. We can believe that we're just smarter, better. And like, that might be the right way. But, uh, you know, again, certain self-awareness and humility, I think it's maybe, right? I think a better, better one is like, let's just try something different. So what we ended up thinking at that time was let's just go universal first. We're already doing this whole high pain point thing. Let's just really go all out on this and say like, not only are we going to go high pain point, we're going to say, we're going to try actively to find one customer in every use case. And the moment we have like some like decently sized like customer in one use case, we will actively no longer go after any more customers there. What ends up happening is once you get one and then you get two and then five and then 10, you start over dedicating resources towards it. And then like, you know, soon like you have like goals to meet. So we're like, look at this point in which investors have no expectations of us beyond like, hopefully they just go somewhere. Let's go horizontal quickly. Like we're not going to specialize on anything pretty much. So the moment we got like, say, uh, a age verification use case, we immediately just a fan down and say, let's try to get a fintech use case. Uh, and the first person who ever uh, we hired who was focused on uh, a sales and growth at that time, who was uh, Daniel, uh, he always loves to like uh, rag on me for this because he said, you don't understand how insane of an idea that was. Like pretty much the moment I learned about any industry, you were telling me, <laughs> Now forget everything you learned, go try something else, right? And, like, and I always like to help remind him that at the very least, all of us were doing that. We did it all together, right? But that became a really, really powerful thing for us because it, it forced our platform to become very generalized. And that generalization, the hyper flexibility that's inherent within it, this idea of building blocks and constructing your ideal identity flow, that all emerged from that exercise. And that exercise became our moat. It became very, you know, it's very difficult now to go off and like continue to do that because it did take a quite a gamble of a, of a bet that, we were, we're going to capture them. And then later on, we'll get more customers in that industry, but we're not going to rush it. We're going to take our time and like really build something right and do that by like getting as many kind of customer use cases as possible. And that, that was really important. I think that has what was a really key thing because to help us navigate past that whole like product market fit challenge, right? You know, you always see like the little like graph, you find initial PMF, but then you struggle to scale. And there's like something of like a lot of people kind of fall off after finding like that initial use case into actually building a business. And uh, I can go on and on about this. But uh, one of uh, our, our friends, early folks, they told us this, which I thought was one of the best thing, which is the hardest thing in a startup is connecting the dots between a product and a business. There are a tremendous number of products out there. A product just solves a problem and everyone has problems. But just solving a problem doesn't necessarily mean building a business and connecting the dots between these two are, is the most difficult thing. And they said that one of the most important things to avoid from doing this is that a lot of times I think founders have a tendency to go in and say, I'm just going to focus on the problem and you know, effectively cross your fingers and hope that problem becomes so big that like you build some sort of billion dollar business. And he said, more importantly, you have to study the space and at least understand strategically kind of what's going on. Because otherwise, what you're just going to do is navigate, get some sort of initial use case, find out that use case or, you know, that initial product doesn't have a large enough market, pivot, try again. But if you study the market a little bit, study at least the existing kind of ecosystem, it'll give you indication of how big can it be? You know, like what can I actually build? Where is like a gap in the space? And at least help connect those dots more. And that's where that valley of death idea comes from is that product to business, it's actually not as clear. And if you just think about product all day, you're never going to get into the world of like, hey, how do I actually build, you know, a scalable business? With with connecting the gaps there, were there questions that were helpful for you to find the connection to that gap for Persona? 
this is a thing I oftentimes tell folks. Is it's very hard to know if something's right, but I, you, it's actually very easy to know something's wrong. <laughs> and I always joke that uh, one of the greatest strengths for us as a team is that we're not better than others at knowing like this is right first. We make mistakes all the time. Our greatest strength culturally is that we identify that we're wrong faster than anyone else. Like the moment we know that this isn't working, we're just like, well, it isn't that. So anything else is better than that, right? At this point, like given that we know this is wrong, we might as well try anything else. And I think a lot of times, especially from decision-making perspective, a lot of teams out there have a tendency, once they realize something's wrong, to really just spend forever trying to figure out like what's right and continue to do what's wrong, but they just spend forever doing like, oh, like how can we make sure we're not wrong again? And for us, we're like, well, we know this is wrong, so like anything has to be better, right? And we just go off and do something else. What would be an example of identifying something that was wrong? That very strategy and tying it back to kind of the earlier statement was we saw every other kind of competitor say like, we're going to go vertical first and then like branch out, but we saw no one do it successfully. So I was just joking with Charles at that time. I was like, look, if 30, 50, I don't even know how many other competitors out there are doing that strategy. And like, none of those are working. Like either we're just better than them, which seems unlikely, or (laughs) that just doesn't work. If we're going to go out, might as well be original, right? I forgot what that quote was from Goodwill Hunting, but it's like, at least, you know, we're not unoriginal, right? Uh, it may <laughs> look like a flaming failure, but it was different. That was a lot of the theory for it. And I think a lot of times there's a lot of things like that, organizationally or product-wise, like a lot of the early ideas that we had for product. I mean, some of our, our, our most foundational product, which is kind of our dynamic flow product, it's actually the third iteration of the exact same product. Every single time we've realized that there are fundamental constructs of it that we had built in that were limiting in flexibility or over complex to work with. And, you know, for engineers, one of the key things is like, when do you refactor? And I think as a culture for us, especially on the engineering side, we have a pretty fearless approach towards refactoring. We generally identify that our existing construct is wrong. And, you know, we try to find as quickly as possible an alternative that seems reasonable and address the original problems while hopefully not making other things worse. And then once it makes sense, we just bite the bullet and say, like, look, we should go off and do this. It's really important not just to do it from a stylistic person. It has to unlock something for the customer. And for us, that's where I think we oftentimes find that value. It's like, we're like, okay, this existing construct does not like unlock this customer feature. How do we go off and just go and do something there? So that was a big thing for us. That's great. Rick, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, you had mentioned a couple of times the identity space you're in is hyper competitive. There are a ton of incumbents. And I think there's a lot of sentiment that there's like red ocean, blue ocean strategy. You should be competing in places that nobody else is competing in in terms of business strategy. But in this very much space, like you jumped into a space with a lot of competition and a lot of incumbents. Why? And what does somebody need to know in order to make a decision to start a company in a hyper competitive environment? So what I used to say actually a lot about the benefit of competition is that you know that there's people willing to pay that. (laughs) And like, uh, oftentimes, I think we underestimate the existence or how difficult it is to uh, identify the existence of a market at all. Like when you are in a place in which like, there are no competitors, I mean, at some point, you got to wonder, like, am I insane? And the second thing is, I also think that people overestimate the benefit of the first mover advantage. So like just because you define a market doesn't mean you'll win a market. Probably the most well-known company that does this is honestly Apple. They're never first, but they do it the best. Like every <laughs> single industry that they've ever broken into, they do it the best. And I think that's an incredible kind of a mentality towards it. At the end of the day, like the red or blue ocean, like which strategy you take, I think it's much more dependent on a personal preference. And I think it ties back to kind of a, you know, what we were talking about earlier of this idea of, are you passionate about the space? Or like, is this just something you can see yourself working on for a long time? And there could be a variety of reasons why that's the case. You know, it could be, it's just interesting. It's important to yourself or something like that. It could be a personal passion. It could also just be that this is something that you and your co-founders or, you know, your early team that y'all all like kind of aligned on and you think it's a good place to work on. That could be the foundational reason. But the thing is, is are you willing to work on it for a long time? Do you enjoy it enough and have enough passion for it to try and compete and win? No matter what, whether you're the first mover or not, 
sooner or later, especially in this modern era in which it's hyper-competitive, in which there's so much funding over the past five years, such that almost any idea out there, you're going to have like just, you know, if there, you don't have competitors yet, you will very quickly. <laughs> like if there's at all any revenue to be made within a couple of years, you're going to see a bunch of competitors exist. And all of them are chasing after you. And they're all looking towards ideas that you first maybe have stumbled upon, but they want to do the same off. And at that point, I think what it always boils down to is, do you believe you can out-execute? And to out-execute, I think it's both obviously, you know, ability, you know, like drive and all of that. But I also think a large part of it is just conviction of like, I, I enjoy that. Uh, I was talking about this actually with our internal team recently of this idea of back in like the 2007 to 2000, maybe I would say 13, 14 era. It's like almost an era of opportunity in which like there's so many ideas, the smartphone just come out that anyone can go off and do anything, right? But today, I think we really are much more in an era of competition. Even if you're the first idea or something like that, or, you know, or close to, or, you know, like create something new, everyone now wants to build a business. People have found out how incredibly valuable, incredibly impactful technology can be. And everyone wants to go in and do something in this space now. So I think for any aspiring founders, the important thing here, there needs to be some degree of like love for the competition. The last thing I'll leave this with is one thing that we internally try really hard to push on is I think a lot of times for companies, especially if you're doing innovative things, is uh, there's a very easy tendency to almost look down on competitors to say like, oh, like, you know, <laughs> they're doing better or, you know, like uh, sometimes like be dismissive of what they're doing. And I think we've tried really hard internally to actually always be respectful towards our competitors or if anything, actually admire what they do best. If there's ever any time in which someone says like, oh, someone's doing this or this, our goal as a team is to look at what they're doing better and learn from it and like honestly admire it because I think at the end of the day, we're all trying to solve the same problem out here and finding that admiration, like competition in a certain way brings out, done right, brings out the best for everybody. It elevates everyone, creates the best products out there, creates meaning. And so on that end, I think that's been something really big for us. But that's, I would just say for any founder, like if you don't like competition, you can't avoid anymore if we're in an era in which like everything's competitive absolutely i first off one comment on what you mentioned about like the role of competitors it's almost like the perspective is like as an artist admiring another artist's work versus like an opponent in which like you're you're taking a look at what they do well getting inspired learning from their techniques and approaches and maybe the things that they do well so in which you can then invent something that is a better version of of what you do and learning from that i think that's kind of cool do you have like a good example of of what it looks like to be execution driven. So for somebody who who like needs to answer the question, yes, I believe I can out execute other people. What what do you mean by that? Oh, so I, I will say I use execution as a very broad term. I think everyone does these days. And the reality is, I think it's just much more complex. It's an umbrella term for pretty much can you either do things faster or better than others, right? Um, but how to achieve that, I think is difficult. And I think the best way I oftentimes say, like, if you want to try to find a way to out execute is you have to find a unique edge, there does have to be something or honestly, a set of things that you probably believe that if you're not at least better than the majority at, this could be anywhere from like market knowledge of just like there's intrinsic knowledge that you have that very, very few people have out there. And then you breed that with say, um, technical capabilities that most other people, despite the knowledge that they have, they are unable to combine that into the best kind of manifestation of that idea. Later on, especially as a team grows, it becomes a lot of, can you align people around a single singular decision? Can you make faster decisions than others? But all of this like usually boils down into, can you build faster, right? And can you build better? And that's the core, core idea. Early on versus later on, that changes. So early on, I think the most important thing usually is a combination of, can you grasp like the overall market quickly? And then with that, can you build something? And generally speaking, that's why I think these days there's so many founders because, uh, you know, it's hard to have like kind of uh, just build something quickly. So sometimes if you can do it yourself, that's really powerful. 
then after that, it becomes very quickly like, can you bring on others? Can you inspire others to actually want to join and like work with you on this? And oftentimes that becomes a hiring one. And then I think the one that oftentimes like founders sometimes underappreciate is getting everyone just to do the same thing. Like just say like, look, we don't know what's right, but we all have to do this together, row in the same direction, as they say, that's really difficult. And like that becomes like the next level of like execution. And I think there's always this evolution of that. And then later on, it could be like, you know, if you're going through tough times, like just raising everyone's spirits and be like, this is why we joined. This is why we're doing this. Let's not forget and like keep on pushing forward. And usually all of these different kind of facets translate into are you building faster and better? The clarity of those those inputs in terms of focusing a founder's efforts, I think, are, are so powerful. Like the ability to like grasp the market quickly, align people to get them to do the right th- the, to do the same thing, and like focusing on inspiring people. Like all of those drive to faster, better. Here's the outcome. Here's the inputs to do that. I I, I love that. Related to this, like, how would you assess, like, if somebody is, like, going to answer the question, like, yes, I can out-execute my opponents, what would be questions to ask? Like, how do you know if and when you should compete or assess if you're execution-driven and will be able to be a viable competitor? I don't think there's a clear way to know, to be honest. And I actually think, generally speaking, the reason why people will or will not compete is not so much based off of, like, some sort of, like, external reason, like, whether they could or you know should i think a lot more actually is like internal do i want to and i think that one's hard right because like sometimes you know like if you have no passion for that problem set or like you just don't like the overall motions or the auxiliary problems that come with whatever problem you're tackling you just won't find the motivation to go after it earlier i kind of like gave this thing of like there's a rational reason that you can like go and backward reason to yourself and then like an emotional reason of why we did this and like the emotional one back then for us of why go kind of horizontal was it would just be cool you know it would be nice <laughs> it would be a win for us as a team competition is very similar it's like, you know, you can rationalize, oh, this is why I'm better than others. But at some point, you just take that leap of faith. And that leap of faith just has to be one in which like, I want to do it. That's why I personally think that like, if especially if you're entering competitive industries, it is really important that you enjoy the competition. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, losing a deal, losing, you know, an opportunity. It, it, it's terrible. It sucks. But like, you kind of have to love that. Like after that, you go back, it's like humbling, you go and learn and like go and try to do better. Like that overall process has to kind of be what drives it. Because I think like trying to focus on the output itself and trying to assess what's going to happen. I think that's impossible. One thing I oftentimes like to uh, tell folks, especially those who uh, are on the product side for us, it is so difficult Like, I think the most remarkable thing about like making decisions, like making like the right call, especially for complex decisions, isn't even that it's hard to know whether the decision is right or wrong. That sometimes is the most difficult thing. If you've already spent like a week deliberating, talking with a bunch of people, and then you've gone off and like found some more data, it's so hard. And at some point, like almost always the next step will become like get more data. And like, you know, at some point, you really just can't (laughs) tell anymore. But I was saying that's not even the greatest travesty. The greatest travesty is that oftentimes, we don't even know if that decision was important or not. Usually we like will forget the ones in which they weren't important, but we spent a lot of time deliberating. But like the reality is like a lot of times some of the most pivotal decisions for a company, people don't even know internally that that was like a pivotal decision. Like some of the, you know, like offhand comments, things like that. I always times like to tell folks, like how often have you had in your life in which like some person's offhand comment or your offhand comment like shaped someone else's life forever. It's just the craziest thing that like something <laughs> that we weren't even like thinking that we're actively doing changed someone's life like forever. That's That's insanity. You know, I, I share that anecdote more so because uh, when you're thinking about like whether you want to compete or not, it really is just a leap of faith. And I think that's so much for so many decisions we have to make. And if it is that leap of faith, then how do you make it? And I think you make it by doing kind of do you enjoy it or not? And that's kind of it. And like, it's, it's a personal one, but it's not about the outcome. It's about, you know, the journey itself. So 
The big question is like, how are you able to get top tier investors in a really competitive space? I think the reason why we ask is, I know Mark Goldberg from Index Ventures is, is one of your investors. He's spoken in our community a number of, a couple of different times. And so you were able to get some of these like really cool people, very helpful and brilliant supporters in a competitive space. How are you able to do that? So for us, I mean, when you're really early and you'll have like no traction, every early stage investor, they're at their core, they're betting on teams. Like they're not betting on ideas as much as they're betting on teams. They care. Obviously, the market that you're within matters a lot because, you know, there's trends and macro trends and you can never escape the gravity that is the market. But once you're like, you know, in a decently like reasonable market, really the only thing at that point is, do I believe in this team? The investors is actually an output of uh, the early team that we put together. And, uh, you know, I can't speak highly enough of the talent and the ability of them. I mean, for kind of like the first 10-ish folks, all of whom who are still here with us uh, that we've been working closely with. I, I mentioned Bill earlier, who I've worked with for 10 years. Vincent, I've known for 15 plus. I think that was really the key thing. So when, when investors see like a group of incredibly talented folks gather to work on a singular idea and in a market that clearly seems to have some value on, I think it's a very, very kind of sane bet at that time for early stage. And I'll answer kind of like the implicit kind of second part there is like, how do you kind of assemble a great team early on? I think that for Charles and I, one of the bigger benefits that we had was we stayed at our respective companies for a really long time. And there were those companies themselves were as a Mark Goldberg puts the talent vortexes, right? Those companies had a tremendous number of like, just unbelievably talented people. And I think that was huge for us. Because we'd stayed for so long, I oftentimes like to tell you know, like your folks that it's really difficult to build a deep relationship with someone without going through some sort of struggle. For both of our respective companies, Dropbox and Square, they went through like difficult times. And being at a company with other people who are talented through those difficult times for a very long period of time too, makes it such that you build a really deep level of trust. And that level of trust kind of is, we you know, when you finally take that leap of faith, that at its core is what's going to convince them to join. Because like, if you're trying to sell them on a, oh, like this is going to be the biggest idea out there. Uh, I think if they're like decently smart, the next question they're going to ask is why you, right? Like I'm sure there's someone else doing it. And a lot of times when people decide to join you, especially uh, again, talented folks decide to join you, it's because they want to work with you and they enjoy working with each other. And I think in so many ways, that's the foundational story of Persona. I mean, I don't know. I've known Charles for over 10 years now. And uh, at any given point, I'd love to continue to work with him. For Vincent, for Bill, for Christy, the thing I am actually personally most grateful for above almost anything of our success or anything that we've come to is that I'm still working with them. Towards that, I think that's like for early stage. For late stage, the answer is actually very easy, which is like, you just have to perform well. <laughs> like If you like are, you know, if you get more customers, if you're growing at some right pace, like then you'll get good investors, right? But anything prior to that, it's really about the team. And any kind of investor out there is really betting on the team that you have. One comment before we go into rapid fire questions. What stands out to me just in terms of the themes that we've talked about today is, you know, you'd mentioned whimsicality. I think I just so value and appreciate your whimsicality, like the ability to have both a whimsical perspective, but also like a deeply execution and competitive drive towards like the idea of starting a business. In a lot of ways, like what I'm associating this with is it's almost like the pale blue dot sort of perspective on like the earth and that like the, the small problems like ultimately don't matter. But you have the kind of this like zoomed out perspective of like ultimately like doing incredible things with people that you really enjoy spending that time with and like highly value is what matters. And so I think just your ability to both be deep down in the competitive trenches, and then also to be zoomed out in this sort of like whimsical, like, what does this ultimately mean to matter to us, I think is a really, really powerful perspective to have as a, as a founder getting into it. I really appreciate that. The quote about the pale blue dots, actually one of my favorite quotes. So uh, you, you actually tug on a couple of uh, resonant things for me there too. Absolutely. Well, Rick, are you ready to wrap this up with some rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? You know, I have a default uh, kind of a response here, uh, which uh, I've been advised not to say as often these days, but uh, it's, it's the truth, you know, is uh, I'm not the most literate person out there. I, I sometimes like read about these founders reading like 
dozens and dozens <laughs> of books every single month. And all I can feel is a, a harrowing, deep insecurity. That's it. You know? <laughs> like, and then at night, I'm watching YouTube and I'm like, geez, Louise, what a waste of my life. You know? <laughs> uh, so on that end, uh, that's uh, that's the truth of it. You know, like I, I've uh, practiced to say like, oh, here's a book that I liked in the past or something like that. Right. And like I, I've read books. I don't want to say I've never read anything in my life. I, I can read as well. But uh, I'm not like an avid reader. You know, I'm reading like these Gates notes and this guy's like telling you, oh, I've read like seven books this past month. I'm like, geez, God, I can't even read a page that fast. You're, you're crazy. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, look, uh, here's what I'll do is I'll actually plug a couple of uh you know, YouTube channels that I think are uh, fantastic awesome. that I, I watch a fair bit of. I'll plug their like and subscribe or something like that, you know, help them get a couple uh, more subscriptions. There are millions of subscriptions. Maybe I'll make a small dent on the third uh, decimal point or something. But uh, on that regard, I mean, uh, Veritasium, uh, Mark Rober are fantastic. I watch uh, CoffeeZilla during, you know, like, I think what he does about like talking through some of the challenges within the crypto space, but still remaining optimistic about it, I think that's fantastic. I, you know, think very, very highly of overall all of his content, uh, his channel. Uh, Wendover Productions, I think is really cool if you're interested in operations. He speaks about things anywhere from like, you know, the challenges California faces to most recently about aircraft carriers. The channel that actually I've been obsessed with lately, the guy, <laughs> the channel's name is called Pony Smasher, uh, but he's actually the uh, director, uh, David F. Sandberg of Shazam. And uh, he talks a lot about like the challenges of movie making. Uh, and I love how like, you know, uh, oftentimes we have this uh, perspective of movie making that's, uh, you know, especially for AAA budget movies. We think it's like a very kind of like a uh, clean and like, you know, incredibly well orchestrated process. And he really kind of showcases how messy it is behind the scenes. And I think it's always a good reminder. I love having folks actually persona even watch uh, uh, his videos because it's a great reminder that even for like $100 million plus budget films, like a lot of times they're hacking things together. It's, it's challenging. So anyways, if I were to yeah. recommend one to folks a pony smasher david f sandberg his channel his things about the problem solving of movie making it's one of my favorite videos of all time a lot to be learned there i can't imagine having to like really intensely act with nothing but a green screen and like a motion capture suit for some of those like big budget type of films like can you imagine like having to really get there wild anyway rick speaking of whimsicality how do you diffuse stress cooking um hanging out with my partner uh charles lives a block away so i see him relatively frequently i code actually every now and then uh and i Sometimes it's diffuses stress. Sometimes it's very stressful, actually. So I don't know, half and half there. But uh, certain parts of it sometimes, you know, especially for uh, the more monotonous uh, tasks, I actually think it's very, like, de-stressful. And the final, final question to wrap us up, Rick, and send us off. Is there a quote or mantra you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Uh, it's actually from Bill, uh, one of my coworkers. I, I love this one, which is, uh, you know, uh, it's a hack in the right direction. I love that from him. He always says, you know, it's like, it's a hack, but there's a difference between a hack in the wrong direction and a hack in the right direction. And at least for the engineers uh, who may be listening to this, I think about that a lot, about this idea of like, look, as engineers, we're always hacking random things together. If you're not, you're a better engineer than myself, but I believe the vast majority always have to hack something together. But not all hacks are created the same. There's a hack in the right direction, a hack in the wrong direction. And I think it's really important that, you know, the directionality matters. And uh, I think about that quote a lot. Fantastic. Uh, a powerful way to close, a hack in the right direction. Rick, thank you so much for bringing us into your world and providing, I think, just really both high level, great perspective, but also deep ground level notes on execution around operating in a highly competitive space. I mean, I just really appreciated all, all the perspectives and frameworks you shared. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Patrick, for having me. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. 
And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comm. U-N-I-T-Y and we'll see you next time.